When I breathe in, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out love. When I breathe in, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out love. Breathe in. Breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. So appreciate this piece by Sarah Dan Jones, one of our excellent Unitarian Universalist musicians. It's been such a helpful way to be present and attend to things great and small. I think when addressing the really great questions, the enormous ones, the impossible ones, the, the deadly ones, I keep relearning the value of slowing down. This week I participated in the third of three retreats and conferences I've attended this fall since October. This is more than I usually go to, but it was responding to what was in the moment. And certainly, from each of these, uh, I bring back tools and tangible materials for the congregation. I have a lot of fresh book titles, you know, just by itself. What I also bring back is experience and reflection and ways to enter into and create quieter moments that are at least as filling as a new lecture or another story. When addressing the most complicated questions, the generational ones, the ones with the heartbreaking and soul-crushing impact, there is so much strength in quiet. So therefore, our time, our story for this service was one on meditation and gratitude. To invite us to begin with gratitude as a way of reconnecting with abundance. To reconnect with that impulse for being generous and compassionate, as is our theme for this month. To bring attention to what brings life. In Unitarian Universalism, we are exploring language around our values, centered in love and including values such as justice and interdependence, equity and pluralism and transformation and generosity. The language for generosity for these values says, we cultivate a spirit of gratitude and hope. We covenant to freely and compassionately share our faith, presence, and resources. Our generosity connects us to one another in relationships of interdependence and mutuality. Interdependence and mutuality. I'm going to say that in this moment in our world, these values, this statement of abundance and relationship, 
seems so counter to how much so much of our world is functioning right now, what values are being held with its deep divisions. And being reminded and called to return to these values is such a great strength. It can be its own rock in the storm from which I will not be moved. great heartbreak I want to spend time on today is that of the doctrine of discovery. I offered a service about this about two years ago, but also justice work is not a one and done kind of experience, right? The work goes on. So I want to come back to the doctrine of discovery and its impact and where do we go? from our Unitarian Universalist Association. If you've not heard about the Doctrine of Discovery, let me share a little bit about that. Because the Doctrine of Discovery is the principle of international law dating from the late, mid-late 15th century. It has its roots in papal decrees issued by Pope Nicholas V in 1452 that specifically, specifically sanctioned and promoted conquest, colonization and exploitation of non-Christian territories and peoples. Hundreds of years of decisions and laws continuing right up into our own time can be directly traced back to the doctrine of discovery. Laws that invalidate or ignore the rights, the sovereignty, and the humanity of indigenous peoples in the United States and around the world. We saw this specifically. Uh, one specific example is in 1823 in the United States where the Supreme Court ruled in Johnson versus McIntosh that the discovery rights of European sovereigns had been transferred to the, U the new United States. What was said over across the pond became law here. And then the United States said, okay, cool. And used that as the basis of law in this country to hold and assert that law, the title by which it was acquired, they maintained the United States, as all others have maintained, that discovery, discovery, never mind that there were people there already, but discovery, gave exclusive right to extinguish indigenous uh, in, uh, title of occupancy, either by purchase or conquest, and also gave a right to such a degree of sovereignty that people would be allowed to exercise. They get to come on in and take over. That's fine. And the Unitarians were certainly in the mix with this, let me just tell you. Associate Justice Joseph Story, a Unitarian in living about 1779 to 1845, later wrote, 
as infidels, heathens, and savages, they, the Indians, were not allowed to possess the prerogatives belonging to absolute sovereign and independent nations. They did not get to self, have self-control or self-determination. They were allowed to live on the land, that 1823 decision says, but they didn't own it. They really didn't have a right, much of a right to be there in some ways. We've been having more conversations about the impact of this doctrine of discovery in not just this country, but also in Canada in the last few years, where we're feeling more and more awareness and, and recognition and impact of the uh, schools uh, that were set, set, apart, set up to eliminate native culture and language and identity by removing children from homes and training them up in the Western European and Christian culture. But also not really caring for whether the children survived, I think, because we are encountering mass graves along with the schools. And again, Unitarians were not exempt from this practice. We were, at least some branches were part and parcel of establishing and running these schools as well. So we have our own culpability to account for and wonder how we might make amends. The scope of this doctrine I'm going to say for myself, I don't know about you, but for the scope of this is really hard to comprehend because this has been going on since, 15, since 1452. This has been predominant practice. So nearly 500 years, 400 years, 600 years. For centuries, people, indigenous people have been seen as not human, not equal in the eyes of the law or of God, or in governance. And being Christian and European permitted dominance and priority over indigenous folks. Even after they might have converted to Christianity, that was still seen as not human. Those papal bulls from 1400s Italy set the tone for the world. Those orders are the foundation of this country. And progress made to counter the doctrine has come from lifetimes of effort and the gradual and emerging awareness of people like us. Progress has been including those in power acknowledging the harm. And actually some of that happened this year. It marked a change for the Catholic Church itself, the body that set in motion this doctrine of discovery. So after years of advocacy uh, from indigenous leaders, from other uh, advocates, Pope Francis visited Canada. And his visit included an apology and a repudiation of the doctrine of discovery from the NPR article. Uh, they said, invoking the Christian mandate 
to respect the dignity of every human being, the Vatican said, the Catholic Church therefore repudiates these concepts that fail to recognize the inherent human rights of indigenous peoples, including what has become known as the legal and political doctrine of discovery. The Vatican also invoked the Pope's words from his visit to Canada the previous year. He said, never again can the Christian community allow itself to be infected by the idea that one culture is superior to others or that it is legitimate to employ ways of coercing others. And this is a powerful statement by itself. The priests commented on this. Uh, what is significant today is the way that the statement repudiates the very mindsets and worldviews that gave rise to the original papal bulls, one of the leaders said. It renounces the mindset of cultural or racial superiority, superiority which allowed for that objectification or subjectification of people and strongly condemns any attitudes or actions that threatens to or damage the, human, the dignity of the human person. So this statement allows for some recognition and also it was an avenue, is a way in which the Pope was apologizing in other ways that are more, slightly more, were public but also more informal um, in, in personal and direct conversations as well. But at the same time, this repudiation is not actually complete. The message from the Holy See states that such dehumanization and the tearing away of rights and lands and autonomy was never actually in a part of official church doctrine. The papal bulls of the late 1400s were political documents. They were under the influence of politics. And in the very early 1500s, about 30 to 40 years after the original bulls, the church made another statement, offered another bull, that affirmed the rights of indigenous people regardless of whether they converted to Christianity. But I'm going to say that's a really good example of way too little and way too late. Because the tone had already been set. The instructions were already there. The permission was already given. And that precedent worked its ways into this country's laws. And we are wrestling with that impact so much later. It is, in some ways, an impossible task to counter the institutional injustice that has enabled the presence of people on the land such as this, as we are now. Our task, among many, is to call for truth whenever possible, to name with as much accuracy as possible the representation of the harm. I mean, bully, you know, good for the Catholic Church for doing this repudiation, but it's a little fine, it's not a great distinction to say, no, no, it really wasn't our doctrine, but yeah, we gave permission. I'm going to call bull on the bull.
progress. Progress also includes everything we can offer of ourselves and our time and our appreciation and attention. This is where some of the breathing comes in, like how can we possibly address hundreds of years of oppression that's in the foundation of our own legal system? Oh my gosh, where do we begin? This past week I spent some time program that I was with with the ministers uh, this week was on the conversation around reparations. And it is something. It is indeed something, even if it feels like the merest thing, to be able to articulate the harm, to tell the stories as much as we can, to recover the stories as much as possible, and to have a sense of the injustice, the scale of the injustice in the world. And to be that much more attentive to and willing to listen and bring forth the stories of success, the stories of reclamation, the stories of reconnection and honoring and relearning and rediscovering who the people were who had been so directly impacted by this doctrine. Who they are, not just who they were, but also who they are. What's also true this year, one of the notable stories for this year, is based in Massachusetts, is based in New England. The Akina Wampanoag powwow this year included the first turkey feather mantle made in 400 years. So a mantle being a, a long extended cape. And the mantle was made with traditional materials, cording and feathers, and using traditional hand twining. So the native folks in this land, in this continent, you know, didn't use kind of the, the spindle and other methods in the Western world. They did hand work to make and weave in this method. And so it is this mantle created by one of the tribal members, one of the elders, Julia Marden, who is a conservator of traditional methods of weaving and work. And it is, this mantle is this long cape that goes, to, I think, probably to the floor. And it is rows and rows of dark turkey feathers. And it has a certain softness and ripple all the way down with each row of feathers. And it's one that took years 
to accomplish. She started about six years ago and then finally said, I'm running out of time. She's not getting any younger. I must finish this and took a year to really get into it and finish it. And then brought it for its debut at the, this particular powwow and let elders take turns wearing it to wrap themselves in this mantle. And this mantle is one, it's of natural materials and turkey feathers and so on. It's not, you know, brocaded gold as our European, you know, royalty might value, right? It's not that. But it is of the material of the people of the earth. It was a tangible learning and relearning of the life and culture of this people, of, of reconnecting with pride and history and legacy. And it was done by hand over years. It was a way to touch that past. I mean, it's been 400 years since someone took the time to make a great piece such as that, that represented resource and power and eldership and then make it possible to be accessible to today and to the future. It is created in the world, from the world. It is bound to life. It is, its embrace, I can imagine, is thoroughly, to wear this for a moment, is thoroughly to be intermingled with the ancestors and the breath of every person contained in that line and who contributed to the mantle. Our task is affirming the inherent worth and dignity of every person while contemplating the impact of our deep systems of inequality. It is to have the courage to recognize the scope of the harm, even as our hearts break. It is calling out the incompleteness of an apology while acknowledging that it is a beginning. And calling out that incompleteness when, whether it's from the church, whether it's from the Catholic church or the Protestant church or capitalism or political. It is to endure with a commitment to a more just and more whole world even when we might be looking forward to a little Thanksgiving this week. From my colleague, the Reverend Dr. Kristen Harper. She is the senior minister with the Unitarian Church in Barnstable, Massachusetts. She is the first woman of African descent to be settled at a UUA congregation through the search process. And she is well-versed as a woman of African descent, she is well-versed in the separateness and fear of our society and our faith and within each of us. And as a minister on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, she is close to where the pilgrims landed so many hundreds of years ago, one of those starting points for colonization of this country. And she says, I do not wish to breathe another breath if it is not shared with others, the breath of life 
is not mine alone. I brought myself to be with you, hoping that by inhaling the compassion, the courage, the hope found here, I can exhale the fear, the selfishness, the separateness I keep so close to my skin. I cannot live another moment, at least not one of joy, unless you and I find our oneness somewhere among each other, somewhere between the noise, somewhere within the silence of the next breath. Let us commit ourselves to this moment, to the next moment, and the next, even amidst, amidst a heartbreaking world and a terrible legacy, even while we keep seeking for connection and relationship and maybe even joy as we give thanks. Amen.